Amen, amen. Hey, this morning we are going to do an overview of what we've spent the last several months looking really in depth at. So if you have a copy of God's Word, you can begin to open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you don't have one, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you this morning. And, and although we're going to spend the majority of our time in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to hit a couple other books. You may just want to write that down. And as we make our way through that this morning, if you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, uh, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses uh, as we make our way through there. Hey, let me pray for us once again and ask God's blessing upon this time. Father, we come into this place thankful for the ways that you have moved in our hearts over the last several months as we've given ourselves to the study uh, in this book, this letter that Paul wrote to a church, really wondering how in some sense they were doing. Uh, He was removed, had to flee, hoped this church would make it, was delighted to find out that they weren't just making it, but that they were in fact doing well. And in some sense, that's really our prayer for ourselves, as selfish as it seems, that we would in fact do well, that we would do well in unlikely scenarios, that we would do well in the midst of a changing cultural tide, that we would do well in the midst of our indifference, that we would do well here in this community. That's not just our prayer for ourselves, for our own individual body. We pray that for all the churches of our community. God, we pray that for all of the gospel presence globally. God, we want to see your gospel shine even in the darkest of places. God, our hearts this morning Go out to those who are ministering in especially difficult contexts. We pray for the team uh, with Empower One that's on the ground right now. God, we pray for their ministry, that it would be effective, that it would be powerful. God, we pray for those uh, this weekend who will find themselves worshiping at the altar of nationalism. They don't know you. All they know is national pride, and so that's the altar that they worship at. And so, God, I pray that some follower believer in their family would connect to them, perhaps the rich history and legacy of faithfulness and the founding of this country, its biblical moorings. God, I pray that perhaps someone, uh, even in this body, would begin to think about members of their family that they're going to run into this weekend that don't know you, that are far from you. God, that you would give them the courage to declare not how they might just experience freedom in this country, but but how they might experience freedom from sin, and that through Jesus and through his blood. God, would you help us to be quick to extend the gospel? Would you help us to find ourselves always dependent upon you and the movement of your spirit in our midst? God, I ask that in this time that you would keep from our minds those things that are waiting for us outside of this room, those things that distract, those things that keep us from focusing on you, And that you would help us to recall the ways that you have been speaking to us the last several months through this letter to this Thessalonian church. Help this to be a refresher. God, help this to be an encouragement to us. And God, I pray that we would submit ourselves to you in all things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was thinking this week about some experiences I had just kind of in, in the work world and, and bosses and, and thinking about different uh, coaches I had growing up. I, I had this one coach my senior year that, that it's just kind of an odd man. Like it's one of these guys you think, I don't think you have any friends outside of this realm. And he was often uh, caught saying things that 
now thinking about it, a number of years later, you're like, is that really a thing? Like, why would you say that? He was imparting wisdom to us one day, and he'd say things like, I've been playing this game since Moby Dick was a minnow. And you're like, okay. And any time that you just looked a little bit down, or like you just weren't all the way into it, you lost a game, this is baseball, football, it didn't matter. <laughs> he would always go back to this one thing, and he had this really gruff voice. I'm just not, I can't do that the whole time, it's rough on the throat. But he would say, if you want sympathy, you go to the cancer ward. Like, that was his thing. It didn't matter what. It was like, if you want sympathy, you go to the cancer ward. I'm like, why does he always go there? Like, why is that his thing? And so you had the Moby Dick Minnow thing, and you had the cancer ward. And that was just pretty much his only thing. I was thinking about a guy I played soccer for my junior year. His name was Jay. Uh, no relation to the Jay here, who's a really great guy. This Jay was a, a terrible person. And it really didn't matter what you did. His school of thought and his approach to coaching was there's always something to criticize. You win the game by six goals. There's always something to criticize. What's wrong with you? Don't you like odd numbers? Don't you like prime numbers? There's always something to criticize. You ran. You didn't run fast enough. You ran. You didn't run far enough. You saved the goal. You didn't save it easy enough. There's always something to criticize, and there's always a new expletive to employ when criticizing. This is just kind of how the guy operated, how he worked. I had a, a, a boss when I waited tables in college, and she was especially fond of just tearing down people to help herself feel better. And so there was no, no end to the discouragement that she wanted to extend to the wait staff, to the, to the kitchen staff, to the bus boys, to help her feel better and to assert her power in some sense. But have you ever had a good coach? Have you ever had a really good boss? Like a good coach is the kind of person that makes you just want to do more and be more. He makes you feel like you can run through a wall. He makes you feel like you want to run until your lungs explode, until your legs fall off. He makes you feel, she makes you feel like you can accomplish anything and you could be anything. You could be 100 pounds and you say, I could be a lineman for the Jets. And maybe you could for the Jets. I could, you know, and so makes you feel like you could overcome anything and be anything. Or what about a boss that steps in and you recognize that they're not primarily concerned with your utility, but they are concerned with you. They're concerned for you. They, they pour into you. They care for you. They want to see you not do well just because they want to see their bottom line do well, but they want to see you do well because they care for you as a person. And when the Apostle Paul writes to this Thessalonian church, there is this understanding that when he writes to them that the tenor of this letter he is a pastor, a planter, a caretaker for them. He loves and cares for this local body. And he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be challenged. And he wants them to find a sure place of hope. And those are really kind of the three headings that I'm going to have us look at it this morning. The understanding of encouragement, what it is to be challenged, and from where we take our hope. So let's look at the idea of encouragement first. In the idea of encouragement, Paul looks at this local body, and there are things that they're doing well. There are things that when he finds out from Timothy, when Timothy comes back, he finds out like they're just doing these things really well. They don't need to be beat up about them. They need to be encouraged in them. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. How? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, 
so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere so that we need not say anything. So this is the picture that Paul gives them. Listen, when I hear about you and I'm talking about you, I walk into a room and I say, Charles, have you heard about the Thessalonians? And Charles is like, have I? The Thessalonians are amazing. You see, Matt, they didn't just receive the word, but they spread the word everywhere. These people are captivated. They are caught up in a constant extension of God's love and constantly living out what it means to be faithful to God in all things. And I say, really, Charles, I wasn't aware of that. He's like, yes, it's amazing. And I want you to think about this. These Thessalonians are getting this letter from Paul maybe six, eight months after he left their city. And so when they get this from Paul, they're just kind of feeling their way out in the dark. When they get this word from Paul, it bolsters them. It's such an incredible encouragement to them. What Paul does in some sense is he finds someone being faithful and he highlights that faithfulness. What would it look like for you? So instead of seeing yourself and seeing the ways that you have lived over the last 6, 12 months, 18 months, and highlighting and, and, and seeing yourself through the lens of neg- negativity, to think, in what ways have I been faithful to the Lord? And to allow God to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Like in what ways, parents, would it be helpful for you to go to your kids, to find them in the midst of doing something well, and say, thank you for picking up your room. Thank you for obeying right away. Thank you for doing these things. You see, Paul is looking for opportunities to be encouraging when he finds them doing the right thing. We can learn a great deal from He encourages them that they have been faithful to the word of God. Look at chapter 2 and verse 13. Chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. There's a way in which we can receive the word of God, and and what we do is essentially, you come to learn some new truth, either through your Bible reading, some book reading, some devotional, something someone says to you. And essentially what we do is we allow it to enter into our mental cue, our mental line, right? And so you're deciding and you're evaluating, in what ways is this really going to be a bummer for me? In In what ways is this going to be an imposition for me? In what ways am I going to have to sacrifice? In what ways am I going to have to yield? In what ways am I going to submit? And so many of us, the way we live our lives is we hear something from the word of God, about the word of God, and we put it over here and we just kind of hold it in this stasis of criticism. And we begin to evaluate it and begin to look at it, not because we want to know whether or not it's true, but because we want to know what it's going to cost us. What would it look like instead? Once it passes the test of truthfulness to move to radical incorporation in our lives. Many of us, we know the truthfulness of God's word. And we know the truthfulness of God's word. We can quote it chapter and verse. We know that some of the things, some of the ways we are living our lives are not faithful. But we choose to give ourselves a buy on those things. We choose to give ourselves an exception on those things. And we think, you know what, I'm doing really well in these areas according to these things. I don't want to just be super picky. I want to give God something to work on next year. I want to give myself something to work on in the fall. I want to give myself something to work on in the spring. You see the picture we get of them? When they came to learn something from God's word, 
they move to radically incorporate it in our lives. And so then we see this challenge. I mean, let us be encouraged. There are some ways that I have seen generosity displayed in the membership of this body. Ways I have seen service displayed in the membership of this body. Ways I've seen peaceableness displayed in the, in the life of this body. Missions, a heart for evangelism, zeal for God's word, for his glory. What would it look like? Not if it's like a dozen of us or two dozen of us or three dozen of us, but what would it look like if overwhelmingly the understanding of discipleship in us is if God's word says it's true, then it needs to be true of us. If God's word says it's true, then I want it to be true of us. See, it's not just me. It's not just Kelly. It's not just Lazy. Lacey, it's not just Matt, it's not just Amy, it's all of us. And so we have the far left and we have the far right, not politically, but just spatially. What would it look like if it were true of all of us, if when God's word says something that we would move in such a way to make it true of all of us? Paul wants them to understand that the trials they face are not present in their life because they're failing. The The trials in their life are not present because they're failing. So he encourages them when trials rage. You'll remember back to Acts 17. So this church is just founded, right? Paul's out there. He's proclaiming the gospel. What we find to you, what we find is that a number of people come to faith. It says in verse 4 of chapter 17, the book of Acts, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, They formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And so one of their first gatherings in this local body is disrupted by a men of the rabble. They're dragged before the city authorities. They're accused of sedition. Paul says, this is normal. Like how your faith began is the normal warp and woof of Christian life. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 4, Paul recounts this. He says, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Affliction, suffering, difficulty is normal in the expectation for the Christian in how we live our lives. Jesus speaking to the disciples in John chapter 15 and verses 18 through 21 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If you are experiencing persecution on the basis of being a Christian, you are experiencing something normal, normative. Now, it could be that as you evaluate and you look at your life and you just say, you know, listen, I don't experience any persecution. I don't experience any sense of dislocation from my community. It could be that you're not experiencing any of these things because what you have done effectively is to compartmentalize your faith to be as minimally offensive as possible. So when you are around someone you know to be an agnostic, to be an atheist, to be an anarchist, we're just going with A words here, 
You, you, you purposely don't speak about these things because you do not want to be an irritant to them. You're not suffering because what you have done is chosen not to be a Christian in certain settings. It could be that you are not suffering as a Christian because you, it's not that you're not choosing to be a Christian in these settings, but you're choosing to be silent in different settings. What would it look like? What could it be like? What would your experience of faith bring into your life if you lived a vocal, bold, consistent display of faith in Jesus Christ in every sphere you went to? Could it be that you would have an awkward relationship with your neighbor? Like, Could that be some of what that trial, could that be some of what that difficulty looked like? Could it be that you would have an awkward relationship with your brother, with your husband, with your cousin? Could it be that you have an awkward relationship with the checker at Walmart? Do they, I don't think they have those anymore, so it's a computer at this point. But what would it look like? Listen, we can't live our lives seeking to keep ourselves from suffering affliction and difficulty. To do so would be to live our lives seeking to look not like Jesus. To be an invisible Christian, culturally blending in with cultural camouflage in all the various places God takes us to. They persecute me, they'll persecute you. A servant's not above their master. Let us be those who are encouraged when we encounter difficulties because encountering those difficulties as a Christian means we are aligning ourselves and looking more and more like Jesus. So Paul wants them to be encouraged. Secondly, he wants them to be challenged. Essentially, the, the word that Paul says here is, you are doing well, do more. You are doing well, do more. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Essentially, Paul went out and he highlighted their faithfulness, and what he says to them is, that's so good, let's see you do that in spades. Let's see you do that more and more. Let's, let's see that continue to grow in you. Essentially, what we could hear this morning is if we're going to evaluate our lives, is if we're going to look at what faithfulness has looked like for you the last week, the last month, the last six months, the last year. And then you're to look at that and evaluate that and begin to ask the question, what would it look like over the next week, month, six months, year, if I grow in that, right? So we begin to see in this understanding that God is not primarily concerned with how you are doing now, and he's satisfied with that growth. He wants to see you continue to grow more and more and more. What does your plan for growth look like? What does your plan for spiritual growth look like? Is that something that you're giving thought to? Is that something that you're asking of yourself? If you don't know the answer to that, if you don't know how to navigate this course of spiritual growth, who is someone near to you that you could go to and say, listen, pastor was on and on and on, but the only thing I did here was he said I need to grow more in my faith. I have no idea how to do that. Could you help me? I had a conversation with a man this morning who's meeting with two guys, and he said, how, is there some tool, some book that you could give to me that I could use to help a, a guy in his 30s and a guy in his 20s grow in their faith? Are you at a place in your faith? 
Are you at a place in your faith where you don't need somebody necessarily coming along and helping you to grow, but you're at a place in your faith where you can come along someone else? Like it could be an awkward conversation. I, I had a conversation with one of uh, Jay's son-in-laws a number of years ago, and he was talking about a pastor friend of mine. And he said, well, you know him? And I said, yeah, I know him. And he said, man, I had the most awkward conversation with him. Essentially, he came over to me, and you're just going to be the stand-in, okay? And so he came over to me and said, listen, I have a question to ask you. Are you interested in entering into a discipleship relationship with me where I continue to pour out and expect more and more of you? Because what I see in you is a potential to do great things for the kingdom. He's like, I felt like I had to say yes. I wasn't really sure that was the right answer. But it was in front of other people, and I didn't know what to do. And so I said, what did you say? He said, I said, yes. I said, how was it? And he said, sometimes awkward, but always helpful. Are you willing to have that conversation with somebody? Listen, we have so many people in here who the lived experience you've had in Jesus Christ, it would be a tragedy if it ended with you. The lived experience you've had in Jesus Christ could be so beneficial in the lives of somebody younger. Do not waste the lived experience you've had in Christ, but pour it on to someone else. In chapter 4 and verse 3, he talks about not just do it and do it more, but he talks about the idea of their holiness. He challenges them to grow more in their holiness. He says, for this is the will of God, this is the purpose of God, this is what God wants for you, your holiness, your sanctification. What God wants for you is that you grow in holiness. So what would it look like for you to take an appraisal, to ask somebody else to weigh in and just to candidly, just to honestly, just to vulnerably tell them, these are the ways in which I find myself habitually sinning. These are the ways I find myself habitually sinning. If you don't know them and you're married, go to your spouse and say, in which ways do you see me habitually sinning, habitually failing? And then make a plan, make a purpose not to continue to fail in those things. Is it in how you use your time? Is it how you use your time? Do you find yourself constantly glued to your phone, glued to a screen, and and you don't even consider how much time you spend in those things? But we begin to get a sense of how much time we spend on all those things when it comes to spending 5, 10, 15 minutes in the Word. Ooh, I don't have time for it. Engaging and helping somebody, being compassionate, using vacation time to go uh, and serve in missions, using vacation time to go and to help someone move going and visiting someone in the nursing home, any number of things. How is time lording over your life? Is it in your pursuit of purity? What does purity look like for you? What are you doing in guarding your eyes from seeing things? If you're a man in here, how are you keeping yourself from the addiction to pornography? What does that look like for you? If you're struggling with that, are you having a conversation with someone? If you're a woman in here and you're struggling with pornography, like what does that look like for you to go to someone and say, listen, this is a struggle I'm having. If you're having struggles in your marriage and your marriage isn't showing the bride of Christ, your marriage should be a holy thing, but you're struggling with that. What would it look like for you to find a couple that you look up to and say, listen, I know you guys don't have everything together, but you seem to have a great deal more together than I do. Would you come alongside my wife and I? Would you help us to grow in our faith? such an incredibly amazing thing that you can do and such a helpful thing in a way that you might grow in your holiness. Lastly, Paul wants them to understand that they need to continue to grow in brotherly love. Look at 4, 9, and 10. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. You've got this. You've got this locked up. 
For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this. Everybody say more and more. He wants them to do it more and more. It's almost just like if Paul sees him doing something really well, he says, you're doing it really well, do it wellest. Right? He just makes everything a superlative. It doesn't work for everything in English, but that's what he does in Greek. And so Paul writes to them, and he wants them to continue to do this more and more. Like Some of the things I hear repeatedly when people visit Ridgecrest is, y'all are the friendliest church I've ever met. A little bit cultish, but very, very friendly. Cultish in relation to friendliness. But what would it look like for us to do that more and more? What would it look like for the friendliness, not just to be a Sunday morning thing, but for you to be caught up in preoccupation with how Christ is growing in the lives of the people you casually encounter in the hallway? What would that look like? What would that mean? How would we engage in that? What would we do? Like, what would it look like for us to engage in brotherly love and to do this more and more? Listen, you cannot love someone in that way. And we settled this a few weeks ago. If you're aware of sin in that person's life and you just give them a buy on that, that's not loving them. That's not helping them to look more like Jesus. If there's not something that you know about them and, and, and ways in which you can grow alongside them, that you're not loving them well. Loving someone in this idea of brotherly love requires a great deal of you for the other person. And in order to love someone well and engage in brotherly love, you're also going to have to open yourself up. You're going to have to open yourself up for inspection. You're going to have to open up yourself for them to know things about you. Because they won't really understand the degree to which you love them unless you allow them to love you in return. So think about us as a church and kind of the idea of, of being challenged, of being in some sense rebuked. You see, over and again, you hear the understanding, you, you hear this communicator, and maybe pastors are the only ones, that churches who plateau die. Churches who plateau die. So if we ever reach a place of satisfaction, we have made it, we have reached it, we're beginning to die. Because coasting is a mental attitude of satisfaction with good enough. So you remember when we were over at Bowie, and we were setting up chairs, and we were setting up our, our uh, nursery every week, which was just, is just the funnest thing ever for those who weren't in it. And, and kind of in our mindset was this goal of coming back to the building. And that's kind of what we're driving for. We're building, and, and, and a lot of days we weren't building at all, and just like a giant pit outside. And so, but we're doing these things, and so we have a visual goal before us. And then we get back in the building, and we transition from arriving here to paying off debt. And praise to God, we're like, we're doing both of those things. But if that's the only goal, if that's what we're always pressing towards, friend, we're going to hit that and we're going to plateau. What would it look like for us to continue to grow and to do more and more? More and more. What would it look like for us to evaluate our impact in our community? So think about for the city, and, and, and it went from a dozen churches to 18 churches to 24 churches to around three dozen churches now. What would it look like if that's not just a week, but if that is a lifestyle of churches where when we have a need, there are half a dozen other churches lined up saying, Ridgecrest, how can we help you? And when we find out that another church in our community has a need, that there are half a dozen churches lined up saying, how can we help you? What would it look like if lostness in our community is not in 
is, is not a thing for us? What would it look like if homelessness in our community is not a thing for us? What would it look like if we never get a piece of paper in our office that says, I'm staying in women in need, my time there is coming to an end, and I've got nowhere to go? What would it look like for us? See, God has not just placed us here to be salt and light, to build this city on a hill where people come to us, but he has placed us here, you and me, here in this community to be maximally impactful for everything we do. What would it look like for us? See, I firmly believe, and I've got to, that the brightest days for us as a church are in the future. Because if we ever say our glory days in the past, we've not just hit plateau, but we're dying. And so we're not talking about numeric growth. We're not talking about having bigger budgets. We're talking about having a bigger impact in our community. Do you want to partner with God in eradicating lostness in Hunt County? Do you want to partner with God in eradicating lostness in Texas? Do you want to partner with God in eradicating lostness globally? Because that's the heart of our God. Constantly living on mission Desiring to see the gospel grow and flourish in areas where the name of Jesus is not currently named. That's how we evaluate. That's how we press on. And in pressing on in those ways, there's no decision, there's no uh, status, there's no level to which we are seeking to rise. We are constantly pushing forward, seeking to do, everybody say it, more and more. See, a plan to succeed is necessary. Constant evaluation is essential. See, we get caught between these two things of being challenged and being encouraged. On the one hand, evaluating those things that we're doing in our lives and saying, I'm doing this pretty well, and then being challenged, I'm doing these things well, I need to do more. But if that's the place we begin to find our hope, then we're placing our hope somewhere that it should not belong and in something that cannot sustain us. So Paul calls them constantly, repeatedly over the course of this letter letter to find their hope in the soon coming return of Jesus. We need to be those who take our hope and comfort in Christ's sure return. Look back at chapter one in verses nine and 10. Chapter one in verses nine and 10. Speaking of those in Macedonia and Achaia, he says, for they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn from or to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They abandoned everything they knew to pursue God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, Christ's return is meant to be a comfort to us now. It's meant to be a comfort to you. Many of us, over the last few weeks, we have, what we've done is essentially we have taken the majority of our comfort through Supreme Court decisions. And so we found ourselves rejoicing and saying, yes, life is being found to be more precious. Life and its protection is being enshrined. And here in Texas, we see that and we think that's wonderful. And y'all, it is. And that's something we celebrate. But don't place your hope in that. Don't place your hope in anything outside the sure and coming return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because everything else is going to fail and everything else is going to disappoint. Every other leader is going to fail you and disappoint you. Every other system is going to be crushed under the weight of expectancy. You need something that will not fail. 
and Jesus is coming back. Amen? We find that the return of Christ comforts us not only while we wait, but the return of Christ comforts us, comforts us while we grieve. Comforts us while we grieve. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. And notice in this, he doesn't say, listen, if you're a Christian, don't grieve. He doesn't say, if you're a Christian, don't be sad. He says, as a Christian, in the middle of your grief, in the middle of your disappointment, in the middle of your soul-crushing experience of loss, there's still hope. So where's the hope in the middle of losing a daughter? Where's the hope in the middle of losing a granddaughter? Where's the hope in the middle of losing a spouse? Where's the hope in the middle of losing a friend? See, the hope isn't that the pain's going to go away. The hope isn't that, oh, you know, time heals all wounds and these things are going to be okay. Where's the hope for the mom who has suffered a miscarriage? Where's the hope for this family who was waiting in expectation for the birth of this child only to see it slip away through their fingers? See, the hope that for that family is not in forgiving and forgetting. The hope for that family is found in verse 14. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The hope for the believer, the hope for those who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus is being reunited with those who have gone before them. So what this gives to us in some sense is a sense of hope and a sense of security for all those in our family who have died, who have been in Jesus, who have known him. And it gives us a sense of urgency as we look at the lives of the people in our family who do not know Jesus and we beg them in earnest, come to the Father. I want to see you know Jesus. I want to see you name the name Jesus. I want to see you place your hope, faith, and trust in Jesus because I want to see and I want to spend eternity with you worshiping and glorifying our King. There is hope for the Christian while they grieve because our God has gone before us. Now, Paul really spends the majority of the second half of the book of 1 Thessalonians in this understanding of Christ's return. But lastly, I want us to understand that as we reflect on the hope that we have in the return of Jesus, what we do is we stay ready. Look at, look at chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. He says, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of light, children of the day. And we are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope of salvation. See, because our God is coming back, we are called to stay vigilant. And so we are those who live out every day, not just as if it were our last day, but we live out every day as if at any moment he's going to peel back the sky and he's going to descend with a shout. And if that's the reality that we're waiting on, we need to be urgent. If that's the reality we're waiting on, we need to not give ourselves 
to being so prone to anxiety on things that are just going to go away. There should be an urgency in how we live. If you're a dad, there should be an urgency in how you impart the wisdom of Jesus to your kids. If you're a mom, there should be an urgency of faith in how you steward that responsibility in your home. If you have influence over anyone else's life and you name the name Jesus, there should be an absolute urgency at which you seek to draw people to come to know him. People to receive forgiveness in his name. See, Paul finishes with these words in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 5. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we are encouraged, we are challenged, we are determined to be hopeful and comforted at the return of your son Jesus. But God, this morning we recognize that there are those in our midst and in this hearing that maybe the message that they're hearing is that they just need to work harder, they just need to do more, and they just need to fret less. God, but this word of encouragement flows through the blood of Jesus. This word of challenge does not overcome the grace we have received in his name. And this word of hope is only ever found in the return of Jesus. And so God, our prayer this morning for any in this room or in this hearing who do not know you, who have not been saved by Jesus, God, is that today would be the day of their salvation. God, that today that they would cry out to you, They would confess their sins to you. God, that they would believe in their hearts that Jesus died and that he rose again. And that you would come close to them and you would redeem their life. That you would save them radically. God, I pray that all of us would be found to be more faithful. God, I pray that all of us would be found to be more dependent upon the grace of Jesus to accomplish that feat. God, we submit these things and pray to you in Christ's name. Amen.